What's going on, guys? Welcome back to the Monkey Financial Podcast. Today, uh, we're going to be recording episode number 45. And uh, I know I've been gone for a few weeks. Um, if you guys don't follow me on the YouTube side, I, I don't know if I've announced to you guys yet here on the podcast side, but I was sidelined with gallbladder removal surgery. But uh, here I am, uh, December 15th. So I think the last time I uploaded was uh, the 24th, right before Thanksgiving when I uploaded my last podcast. So Episode 45, I figured I'd do a little bit of a Q&A session here with the audience. So in my YouTube community post, um, I asked if you guys uh, had any questions that you wanted answered, um, and then I was going to pick a couple and go over it. So thank you uh, for submitting your questions. It looks like we got some from uh, Kenny Marquez. Uh, Nick Aguilar, and then uh, we got Rye Steady in the building. Uh, by the way, follow his YouTube channel um, if you uh, uh, if you guys could do that for me, I'd appreciate it. So uh, I'll start with you, Kenny, first. Um, your first question for me was, um, what funds would uh, you be investing into for a baby's account? Uh, now, it's kind of interesting question. Right now, for uh, for my son, I have two accounts that are specifically designated for him. One is a 529 education account for college savings, and the other one is just a regular taxable account under my name, but I will uh, kind of use that account to uh, help him out throughout life and then gift that account to him for him to kind of continue the legacy. So I use two different strategies. Um because uh, with the 529, I can't uh, sort of um, pick a custom strategy. I kind of have to go with uh, what Fidelity offers. And in my case, I'm 100% in a uh, total U.S. market index fund in the 529, uh, kind of by default because that's what they offer. That's the lowest cost that they have. And it's still like 11 or 12 basis points. Um, and is that an okay strategy for a 529 account that I won't use for 18 years? I think it'll be fine, right? Even if we go through a period uh, like the lost decade that we had in the 2000s, let's say this upcoming decade is like that. I think that uh, having 18 years uh, to invest into this account, I'll be okay. So I'm not really worried about that, that I can't pick a custom strategy. I'm just more worried that it's a low cost option. And, and, and that's what I have. Now for the other one, kind of the legacy fund, I do utilize the Monkey 3 strategy and I have three funds in there. So I have a total US stock market fund in VTI and I have uh, 20% allocated to a total international, which I happen to select VX US. And then I have 20% to US small cap value and I use the Russell 2000 value fund VTWV from Vanguard. So I have three Vanguard ETF offerings in the legacy fund. And the reason I have the Mucky 3 strategy uh, in the legacy fund as, oppo as opposed to just another total stock market is because that account, I, you know, like I said, it has plans to, to live a few generations past me. And I really want to uh, make sure that I'm squeezing out the best possible long-term performance. And when you're talking about three generations, three three decade periods, that's uh, nine decades or 90 years of investing, um, something like a half a percent or a quarter percent is going to matter. And, and I really truly believe in my hearts of hearts that the Monkey 3 strategy, if given long enough time horizons, 20, 30, 40 years, 
can uh, outperform just a simple U.S. stock market or S&P 500 index fund. Doesn't happen in the short short term. Uh, rarely, if ever, happens unless you got a real good stroke of luck um, and a, and a nice tailwind pushing you. But um, you know, in twenty, thirty, and definitely in forty year periods, um, it, it is very likely. At least that's how it's been in the past. It, it's uh, very likely to outperform. So, Kenny, hopefully that answers your questions. There, those are the kind of uh, funds that I'm invested in now. As far as uh, you know, if anything you should pick, take out from that, I mean, that's up to you. I can't tell you what to do. Um, but, you know, keep in mind uh, the most important thing, there's three things that you should think about, right? So what kind of account is it for your baby? What's the time horizon? Because not all baby accounts, like if, let's say your your kid's like five years old and you open an UPMA, um, when they're 18, that's their account. So you have a really short time horizon there. So you probably want to pick a strategy that's quite simple. You know, you know, as long as you get a return, you get a return. But you know, if if you, if you got an account that you're trying to build generational wealth with, and and you know, build a legacy for the family, um, I think you should be a little more strategic, at least in my opinion, um, because once you get to uh, timeframes of 50, 60, 70, 80 years, uh, the smallest quarters and half a percent really, really matter. Uh, and they're the difference between like a hundred million and 250, 300 million. And that's, we're talking about $200 million difference there. Um, after, you know, you, you go that far out. So keep that in mind. Uh, all right, let's, uh, stick in line with the next question here from Nick. Nick says, would you be able to do a video? Uh, sorry, Nick, I'm going to have to do it here in the podcast, but would you be able to do a video, your thoughts on following the S&P 400 mid-cap? Uh, do you think it's a good complement to go with FXAIX? Um, it, it is, uh, but the thing is, so when I, when I like to think about making investing really simple, I like to think about like what's the easiest or the path of least resistance, right? And having a mid-cap S&P 400 and having an S&P 500, you're kind of creating a total market minus uh, small caps. Um, depending on asset allocation, like if you do 80% FXAIX and 20% S&P 400, you're going to return whatever the S&P 500 returns over the long run. Uh, because... S&P 500 already has a little bit of mid-cap in it, believe it or not. Um, and it's not really a huge tilt away from what the total market return is. Um, so in my opinion, having two of those and having allocations of 80-20 doesn't make sense. But if you wanted to tilt more to those medium-sized businesses um, and you wanted to do, say, a 50-50 tilt... 50% S&P, 50% mid-cap, I think you would see somewhat of a difference there. Um, your portfolio would perform completely different than the market. And in some instances, it'll do better. In some instances, it'll do worse. And if you believe in factor investing and and, and if you believe in the Fama and French factor three model, then you know that uh, size is one of those premiums. So if if you pick a mid-cap and you have 50% of your portfolio in mid-caps, um, you're taking on a little bit more risk, so you're rewarded with a little bit of a better premium. And, and mid-cap blends have performed a little bit better than large-cap blends over a 40-year period. So there is that case to be made for it. But then I like to challenge it from a standpoint of if you're willing to stick your neck out that far and, and try something like that, why don't you try the most 
aggressive route with about similar risk, but most aggressive as far as performance. And that's a small cap value fund than an S&P 500 fund. Now that kind of shakes things up a little bit because then you got a large cap blend, which performs the way it does. And you have a small cap value on the US side, which has some correlation to a large cap blend fund. But for the most part, they are different. Uh, they they don't overlap in any holdings. They um, perform completely differently going into market crashes, coming out of market crashes. They perform differently in bull markets and bear markets. So that, I think, adds more spice to the portfolio. But more than that, um, it doesn't add that much more risk compared to a mid-cap blend. But uh, at least historically, anyways, the performance has been much, much better with that uh, mix of a portfolio than uh, uh, a mid-cap blend and, and large-cap blend. So, Nick, you know, it's it's fine, but I, I really challenge you to, to kind of do more digging and see if it's the most, not even the most optimal, if it's the one that makes the most sense, right? It's um, especially depending on the allocation that you're thinking. If you don't deviate too much from uh, total market index, you're going to get what the market gets. And you're really then just doing two funds where you could have had uh, one fund like a FSKX or FZROX or VTI or something like that. So... Um, good question, Nick. Hopefully that uh, clarifies things for you. And then uh, the last question here is going to be from Rise Steady. Uh, he said, might be interesting Vanguard annualized 10-year forecasts for U.S. equities uh, at two and a half or 2.3 to 4.3%. That's U.S. Uh, large cap, U.S. small cap. Uh, oh, I'm sorry. That's U.S. large cap and U.S. small cap 2.2 to 4.2%. Uh, they're projecting developed and emerging international to outperform the U.S. 5.3 to 7.3. That's, I'm assuming, for the developed. And they're emerging 4.2 to 6.2% in uh, the 10-year forecast source below. So I'm going to uh, check out this article that you sent me, Rise Steady. I just want to look at it here. Now, before I even go answering the question um, I just want to say kind of forecast how I, I mean, forecasts are important, right? It's important that we kind of put out these predictions of where we believe the market's going to go um, for a few reasons, right? Like if somebody makes a forecast and there's a lot of evidence uh, behind it that says, hey, in the past, you know, 20 years, this is what this has done. This is the moving average. Uh, this is not the moving, this is the PE ratio. This is uh, uh, what the... Um, what the standard deviation has been. This is what um, the max drawdowns have been. And then we look at uh, historically and we say, okay, well, this last period has been well overvalued compared to what the market does, right? So then a normal projection would be that in the next decade, it's going to do worse than what it's historically does on average to kind of get back to, to the mean because everything, and this is something that I, I really, really believe is that reversion to the mean, every investment reverts back to the mean. Um, sometimes that mean does kind of get higher as investments outperform, but in the long run, everything reverts to the mean. So uh, in this article, I'm just going to take a look real quick to see here the projections. Yeah, so um, again, they're, they're using um, return projections based off median volatility. So instead of using, um, and th this is fine, uh, but instead of using uh, a measure uh, like the PE or a measure like um, 
average returns over, say, a four-year period. They're using mean volatility, saying that um, certain asset classes, this is what the average mean volatility is. All that means is um, basically over the last 10 years, (laughs) they've been a lot less volatile than what they historically are, uh, meaning that there could be a huge correction in place. At least that's how I'm seeing it. I haven't read this article. That's what I'm just seeing here from the stats that they're that they're um, using. But I think it's important to to understand that forecasts are guesses, right? So when when you look at a weather forecast and it calls for I don't know. A 30, 40% chance of rain. It could rain, it might not rain. It might rain in your area, it might rain down the street. Who knows? It's a it's a forecast, right? Same thing here, you know. Uh, Vanguard, again, I respect Vanguard, and I'm sure um don't know who the author is of this uh of this uh, article here that you sent me, but I'm sure they have used um very sound data to to make the forecast. And I'm not gonna spend uh time reading all the way through this, but the thing is it if you look at the last 10 years then by all means international should outperform the US in the next 10 years um based off any metric you want to look at price to book uh price to earnings anything you want to look at uh, if you want to look at mean volatility i guess you can you can look at the average volatility as well and see that uh, international has been has been crushed. I mean, International has posted uh, in this bull run, it's posted three years of negative returns. So, and even this year, I think this year it's only up two or 3%, um, a global XUS type international fund. So yes, I, I agree. I think the next 10 years, International should do better. Uh, using those numbers that you, that you mentioned and that are mentioned here in the article, the the fact that they're going to do better by about three or four percent makes sense. Um, again, I did a podcast episode. I forget which episode it is now. I can uh, try to look it up real quick, but I know I did a podcast episode, kind of going over uh, the fact that uh, inter- international looks like a really, really good buy, um, and uh, it's episode thirty-seven: How to Forecast Stock Market Returns. And international looks like a really good buy. And you know, I've I've had a lot of uh, people that I've I've gotten a countless of emails. People are saying that I'm misleading people by telling them to have 20% international. I think, you know, not to be sound so harsh, but you know, as a recent, I really don't have time for stupidity. But I think a lot of people that say that they're they're so short-sighted in their thinking that uh, they quickly forget that from 2003 to 2007. Uh, international compounded at an annual rate of like 35%. Or 1986 to 1989, it compounded at 33% a year over that four-year period, while the U.S. stock market did something like uh, 10% and 15% in those respective uh, four-year chunks. So, guys, just because the last 10 years uh, don't look good for international doesn't mean that uh, there isn't periods where international uh, kicks, and I mean kicks, it eats uh, uh, the US, uh, U.S.'s lunch when it comes to a three to four year per- uh, period sometimes. And 70s and 80s were a great example of this where you had years where international was up 60%, um, six, like 1986, 60% was the year it was a return for national uh, international in one year um very rarely does the u.s market do that so 
it's important to know that uh, if everything reverts back to its mean, all things being equal, if you look at a larger 50, 60 year period, international, total international and total US are identically the same in returns. Um, but you can make the data sound good in either case, depending on which which year you want to start counting. But if you go back far enough, you'll see that they're the same. So I think Rice Steady, this, this forecast is pretty spot on. Um, for me, I'm even more bullish on the international side for the next 10 years. The the 5.3 to 7.3, I think, is is on the low side. I think it's 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 got more, uh, as I mentioned in that episode 37 podcast, I think it's, it's going to be more like 10% uh, compounded annually for the next decade. Um, and the U.S. side, I see uh, 3 to 5%. So I'm pretty close to Vanguard's forecast as well. Um, on on that, and I think you know if you want to make forecast, if you um, think that that helps you uh, kind of stay the course, it's perfectly fine. But just don't uh, be stuck to those numbers. Uh, again, a forecast is is your best guess, um, but we don't really know what's going to happen. But yeah, you know if if you wanted to make educated guess, I would say um, that that would be pretty good. So. Uh, Interesting questions, guys. Thank you so much for uh, posting your questions and kind of allowing me to uh, do my best to answer them. Again, I'm not a uh, stock market professional, guys. I uh, I, I read a lot, um, and I've really learned, I would say, over the last year, I've learned more about the stock market in the last year than I have at any point previous to that uh, because, you know, as a... As a as a retail investor, there's um, there's sort of a evolution that we go through, and I think I'm going to spend a few minutes talking about that before I end the podcast. But as a retail investor, I think you know we all get introduced to the market, and uh, my introduction was actually uh, through Robinhood and Betterment, which Robinhood is picking your own stocks, and Betterment is like a robo advisor, right? And so I kind of got introduced to two different perspectives of investing. Um, Betterment was a basically uh, an algorithm that you, they asked you a few questions. You filled out the questionnaire, and they selected a portfolio of stocks and bonds for you that was well diversified. But they did charge twenty five or thirty five basis points. I forget what it was at the time, back in twenty eighteen, or uh, so they did charge something to do that. But uh, they set you up with something in in low cost, broadly diversified ETFs and. You really didn't have to do anything except put money in. So that's great. Uh, and then there's the Robinhood approach, which I kind of got bit by both bugs at the same time. Um, the the Robinhood approach uh, made investing kind of like an arcade game, right? Like you would place a trade and it'd be confetti. <laughs> Every time you put, a, you put a buy or sell order, confetti pops up on your screen and you get to scratch uh, off your 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 free stocks of your two dollar free stock or something, right? So that's archaic, and uh, unfortunately, um, Robinhood drew in more new investors than Betterment did, and it's it's kind of sad that it happened that way. But we now have a uh, in the last, especially since since COVID, since the the COVID crash of twenty twenty, we now have a bunch of retail investors that are uneducated in investing and they see it as a game and GameStop and AMC are living proof of that. Uh, meme cryptocurrencies are living proof of that. And kind of that's, 
what people think is investing. To me, if you're looking for that kind of excitement, if you're looking to double your money that quickly, you're better off going to the casino, right? I can sit at the blackjack table, put down a hundred bucks, and within 15 seconds, I can turn my hundred bucks into 200. 15 seconds, that's instant. Uh, that's even faster than crypto or than penny stocks or, or, or these meme stocks or whatever. So, you know, I'm, I don't get excited about that, right? I can understand why people who are, who are not educated in investing get excited because it, they see it as a gamble. They see it. It's no different than what uh, FanDuel and DraftKings does. You place bets on, on sports teams, right? If What's the score going to be? Or, um, you, you draft your roster and your your players score more points than their, the, the guy you're playing against and you win. It's it, the, the Robin Hood investing is no different than that. So that's kind of where we're at. And once you evolve from that and hopefully you start with something like a robo-advisor, like a Wealthfront or Betterment, and uh, you see what type of uh, ETFs they have for you and you just kind of do some more research on top of that and then you get introduced to a whole new world of investing uh, that's more academic, uh, that's more structured, uh, that that's more process-based and not so much emotionally or behaviorally driven, right? Like um, when you make a trade, more than likely it's your emotions that are causing you to make certain trades, get in, in and out of positions and things like that versus when you're um, sort of more educated on investing, everything becomes process-driven. Um, for me, exa- for example, the monkey three, everything about my portfolios is the monkey three. It's the same strategy across the board uh, where I, wherever I can uh, pick my own funds, that's the strategy I deploy. And there's a process to that, right? Like it, it's, it's very difficult for somebody to continue to believe in international if they don't have a process. If, if they see a 3% return this year for international and the S&P is up 23%, they're going to want to jump ship because they don't have a process. And this is so important that um, if, if you're not able to do this on your own and instead of sending me emails and accusing me of misleading people, it really makes you look dumb because I've spent countless and countless of hours studying this stuff um, and nobody can get it right in the short term. Nobody. But as the market Uh, not the market, as your portfolio develops and 10, 15, 20 years go by, that's where you see the true uh, ability to to perform. And what the numbers show is retail investors average in a 15-year period 2.5% while the market does somewhere around 10. So retail investors are way behind um, when it comes to long-term performance, because short-term performance doesn't matter. I'm not impressed with people that tell me they can uh, return 1% a day or 300% in a year. I'm not impressed by that. That, again, shows me your education level is really low when it comes to investing. You might be a great person, you might be a smart person, but you're not a good investor. And um, that's kind of what my mission has been for since day one on this channel. I've been trying to show people the right way about it. And when you have a process... And a system in place, it's so boring. It's so methodical. It's just it just happens, and it's not exciting. It's not fun. It doesn't get the clicks. It doesn't get the views. But damn, does it work? Damn, do you get to build wealth 
in my case, $362,000 in three and a half years. Um, I didn't luck into that 360. I, it was negative in 2017, right? I had to create a process and stick to it and work and work and work and, and still stick to it. So you sending me an email telling me I'm an idiot because I'm an international doesn't, doesn't do anything for me, except it makes you look foolish because I have a process and unless you show me something that says my process is wrong and most of you can't even uh, critically think for yourself, you probably saw somebody <laughs> on YouTube or you read an article on CNBC or Forbes that said something like that and that's your process. And if you want to go that way, please, please go that way. But don't try to challenge me on an intellectual level. Um, I will run circles around around you. So uh, that's a fair warning to you guys. If you if you want to engage in, in that, um, you can, but it's not going to work out well. And I'll challenge you to come on the podcast and we can have a conversation about it as well. All right, let's end on a happy note. Thank uh, all three of you guys for submitting your questions. Really good questions. I appreciate it. Until next time, guys, remember, move obstacles, keep investing.